This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Welcome everyone to September session of Condo Crunch. This is our short info sessions where we try and pack as much information as we possibly can into 30 to 45 minutes. Well, with construction season being still going on and uh, lots of projects in the forefront, thinking about next year as well as construction continues to resume, we thought it would be a good idea to answer many of the burning questions and deal with some of the hot topics that we've been asked about in relation to construction. So this is our part one of a two-part series on construction. Today, we're going to hear from three of our panelists, Jim, Christy, and David, about the key issues that you need to be thinking about for a CCDC contract. At the end of our session today, I'll tell you when part two is happening and what we're going to tackle in part two. Just a quick reminder for today's purposes, we don't take questions during this session so that we can do our very best to stay within our 30 to 45 minute time frame. Again, if you have burning questions about other topics or other issues, we'll hopefully take up another Q&A session before the year is out. But these sessions are aimed primarily at delivering punchy material in a short form content while you are hopefully having some lunch and uh, otherwise relaxing. So let's jump right in to our first speaker. Jim, I'm gonna go ahead and invite you to turn your camera on. And Jim is gonna give us an overall summary and introduction about tendering contracts, a general overview of what you need to be thinking about. So Jim, over to you. Thanks very much, Nance. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. So an introduction to construction contracts. Um, construction contracts are of course, some of the largest and therefore most important contracts that a condominium corporation will enter into. Suppose you have some work to do and you wanna hire someone to carry out that work. Normally the process is as follows. You start off by asking for a proposal or a quote from one or more contractors. This is the so-called, this commences the so-called tendering process. And of course, this can be very simple, as simple as just asking for a quote, or it can be more complex, such as asking for a more detailed proposal. But either way, you are making an invitation or a request to one or more contractors to give you a proposal. And if they want to, they then tender their proposal in accordance with your request. Before continuing, I should add this. At the present time, there is no requirement in the Condominium Act that you ask for proposals from more than one contractor. In other words, unless there is something in your governing documents, the declaration bylaws or rules, or in the management contract stating that you must obtain proposals from more than one contractor, the law currently allows you to obtain a single proposal from a single contractor and to accept that proposal if you wish. This is what we call sole sourcing, dealing with only one contractor. Again, this is currently permitted by the Condominium Act. Now, section 39.1 of the Condominium Act, which is not yet in force, states as follows. A corporation shall not enter into a prescribed contract or transaction unless the procurement process and other contracts or arrangements that the corporation entered into in relation to the contract or transaction meet the prescribed requirements. 
So at some stage, the regulations under the Condominium Act, that's what, the, that's what they mean when they say prescribed, the regulations will require some sort of procurement process or tendering process for certain contracts. The expectation is that this will require that condominiums, condominiums obtain proposals from a certain minimum number of contractors for certain types of contracts, particularly larger contracts. But again, this is not yet law. Right now, sole sourcing is perfectly legal for all contracts, again, unless a different sort of tendering is required by your governing documents or by your management contract. Of course, seeking proposals from more than one contractor is often a good idea, particularly for larger contracts, simply because you wanna be sure that you obtain a fair competitive price. This approach is very common, again, for larger contracts, but that's something to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. Coming back to what I was saying, once you've received one or more proposals, the next step is to accept a proposal if you wish to do so. In some cases, this acceptance may itself finalize a contract to have the contractor carry out the proposed work for the proposed price. But this means that the terms of the contract will have to be then determined or deciphered or implied only from the terms of the request for proposal and from the contractor's proposal. And in many cases, the request for proposal and the proposal don't contain all of the necessary detail that you would want in a contract. So in most cases, it's best to make it clear that the acceptance of a proposal is subject to the two parties then entering into a written agreement on terms that are acceptable to both parties. So that would then be the next step in the transaction, entering into a mutually acceptable contract. I'm going to come back to the contract in a few minutes, but I first wanted to say a few more things about the tendering process. The main thing I want to stress is that the tendering process, the process of requesting one or more proposals, receiving one or more proposals, and then accepting a proposal is exceptionally important. The law is that the tendering process must be fair and must be clear and must not be misleading to any of the bidders or the contractors. If the tendering process doesn't meet those tests, then there are some potential negative consequences. For instance, you may end up with a contract that you don't want. For instance, a forced contract with the lowest bidder. You wouldn't necessarily want to enter into a contract with the lowest bidder every time. You may also end up with a contract based only on terms of the request for proposal and the proposal, as I was saying. And those terms may sometimes be quite minimal. Or you may end up having to pay a contractor costs for the contractor's wasted time to prepare a proposal in an unfair process. So again, the tendering process is exceptionally important and needs careful attention. Here are some key rules of thumb for the tendering process. Number one, the request for proposal should contain sufficient detail, including drawings and specifications where appropriate to allow the bidders to fully understand the work. Many times a visit to the site is wise and may even be mandatory. Again, the idea is to ensure that all bidders have the information they need to prepare the requested bid. 
Number two, all bidders should receive equal treatment. No bidder should have an advantage. So for instance, there should be one deadline applicable to all bidders for delivery of proposals and all uh, bids should remain open for acceptance for a set period of time. Number three, the request for proposal should say that any or all bids may be rejected. And in particular, that the low bid won't necessarily be accepted. And this is very common in tendering processes. Bidders should be told about other criteria as well that may be relevant to the, to the, to the selection, such as past experience with the contractor or uh, their reputation in the uh, overall community, etc. Number four, all bidders particularly need to be told if one bidder has any sort of advantage. As an example, all bidders would need to be told if one bidder is the president's brother. With the benefit of that sort of information, others may decide not to bother bidding. Finally, make sure it's clear that a written contract is a further required step following any acceptance of a bid. Now on this last item, the subsequent contract, there are, I think, two options. The first option is for the bidding documents to say that the resulting contract will be on particular terms. For instance, many tender documents refer to a specific CCDC form of contract. CCDC is the Canadian Construction Documents Committee. You can go to the CCDC website if you would like to know more about CCDC. But in a nutshell, CCDC is a committee set up by certain founding organizations from the construction industry and from the architecture and engineering professions. CCDC's goal is to create standardized construction forms, including standardized construction contracts that are trusted and accepted across the industry as fair and balanced. The idea is to minimize negotiation about construction contracts and other documents that are used in the construction process. If everyone agrees these contracts are fair and reasonable, then we uh, avoid a lot of negotiation about what the terms of the contract will be. So CCDC seeks input from various stakeholders and then prepares and frequently updates these standard forms that they publish. The CD, CCDC form that we encounter most often is the CCDC2 standard form of stipulated price contract, where the contract price is essentially a stipulated amount, a certain fixed amount. Christy and David are going to talk more about CCDC two contracts, but for now, let me just say this. In our view, the CCDC2 contract is pretty good, but certainly not perfect. In our view, the CCDC2 contract is slanted somewhat in the contractor's favor. So we actually prefer a different contract or a somewhat revised form of the CCDC2 contract. As I say, Christy and David will have more to say on that. Anyway, that's the first option. Have the tendering documents call for a specific form of written contract. The second option is to have the tendering documents say that after a bid is accepted, the selected bidder and the owner, the condominium corporation, must then enter into a written contract on terms that are reasonably acceptable to both parties. We tend to prefer this second option because it allows the condominium corporation to then require that 
well, what we consider to be a better contract, better than the CCDC2 form. So that then brings me a little bit further on to the contract terms. And I'll repeat, we're not 100% happy with the CCDC2 contract. We like to see some amendments to that form. We also have our own shorter form of construction contract that we prefer in many cases. Our shorter form of construction contract is in our view suitable for many construction contracts. Now, here are the basic terms. And uh, Allison, uh, I'm gonna ask you to may maybe put up that um, uh, uh, handout that I, if I can call it handout that I have there. Thanks, that's perfect. Um, now you can see in this handout, uh, sort of a list that I just wanted to provide, a list of the terms that you should normally expect in a construction contract and that you'll normally see in a construction contract and that we have in our short form of construction contract. So I'm just providing the list. I think it's maybe interesting for everybody to see it. You'll see two items that I've got in red there on this list. And I just highlighted those because I wanted to say a few more things about them. So the first one, Payment terms. Note that payment terms, I'm just reading here from what my note says here, note that payment terms must comply with all requirements, including holdback requirements under the Construction Act. You must hold back on a construction contract in accordance with the Construction Act. It's also a good idea to include prompt payment provisions that are in keeping with the new prompt payment provisions in the Construction Act. This is a whole new area of construction law and we're going to talk about this in greater detail at our next condo crunch, but this is uh, something that should be contemplated and covered in the agreement. Now, one key slip up that we often encounter in, the, in cases involving construction matters is where the condominium corporation pays too much to the contractor because the work has been overvalued or what, what I'll say is not properly valued. Until construction lien rights expire, you must not pay the contractor more than 90% of the value of the work performed. And in my view, the value should always be reduced by the estimated cost to rectify any deficiencies. I, I don't think it's appropriate at the time of payment to be assuming that deficiencies are gonna be just covered by a warranty or something. So in other words, deficiencies are subtracted from the value of the work. It's not valuable work. Also, additional holdbacks may be necessary if you ever receive notice of, an, uh, of a, a contractor, subcontractor, not being paid. In other words, if you receive notice that a subcontractor hasn't been paid, you likely must stop all further payments to the contractor. So those were my remarks on the payments business. Then I want to go down to the other red item, which is insurance obligations. And you can see my note in each case, bonding requirements should also be considered, including bid bonding at the tendering stage, performance bonding, and labor and material bonding, which are really special types of insurance that apply to construction contracts and, and construction projects. And my message here is this, insurance obligations, not just insurance obligations in relation to the work, but also the bonding uh, matters that I just uh, went through there are really important and are often overlooked. 
remember to think about bonding, particularly for larger contracts. And you can talk to them too, uh, you know, with your engineer, if you've got an engineer involved or with a project manager, if you've got a, a project manager involved. So otherwise there's my list and uh, Nance, those are my comments. Fantastic, Jim. Thank you so much. Uh, just a quick reminder for those in attendance here today, we can't take questions during the session because we have lots of material to cover and we want to make sure that we cover all that material. Uh, some people have asked, are we going to get a link to Jim's slide? Well, we're not going to get a link to Jim's slide, but if you've attended our condo crunches in the past, you know, sometimes a blog may follow with some of this important information. Well, and we, we do always have a, a, a podcast. So Jim, keep them on their toes. Just keep watching our blogs and see whether or not something comes out. So thank you so much for that, Jim. We're going to turn on to our next speaker. So our next speaker is David. And David is going to start out with a couple of the key provisions that you need to be watching out for in the CCDC contract, as already alluded to by Jim. Thanks, Nancy. So I'm going to be discussing two kind of items today. Um, I'm going to try and uh, highlight some uh, items of note, uh, differences between the 2008 CCDC and the 2020 CCDC. And then I'm also gonna provide some commentary on some warranty provisions and termination provisions that are broadly applicable to both editions. Um, so some of us might know already, but there is now a 2020 version of the CCDC. So when your condominium is engaging in a project that requires this type of document, make sure you're mindful of which edition is being used because there are some changes. Um, there's too many changes for me to kind of go through each of them today, but I'm gonna to touch on a few that I think are of note. Uh, the first item I wanna to touch on is some changes in the definitions. So in the, in the 2008 CCDC, contractor, owner, and consultants have wording that also includes uh, phrases such as, or the consultant's authorized representative, or the contractor's authorized representative, or the owner's authorized representative. In the 2020 CCDC, however, this wording is removed. And I'm teetering back and forth on whether what I think about this amendment. Like on the one hand, I understand it. You wanna make sure that when you're dealing with people, uh, they can actually bind the party that they represent. So for example, if you're dealing with a contractor and the contractor appoints someone else, uh, perhaps a subcontractor to deal with the owner, you wanna make sure that whatever the subcontractor says actually binds the contractor. You don't want a situation where the contractor, subcontractor says something and then the contractor later on says, oh, that's not, that's not part of our position. We're not saying that. On the other hand though, when you're in our business, we sometimes have to deal with CCDCs when things go wrong. So when we represent a client on CCDC file, we are technically the client's authorized representative. And this is kind of our role when we go and correspond with other parties. So it, it, this is probably a smaller point, but I think uh, this kind of wording change, I get it, but then there's also some situations where I think uh, having the original wording might have been helpful. Ultimately, it's probably not going to change too much in terms of the practicalities of how CCDCs function, but I thought it's an interesting change. The second item I want to mention is a new phrase in the 2020 CCDC. Uh, the phrase is called ready for takeover. On the 2020 CCDC, 
you can first find this reference uh, of this phrase at article 8.1 at 1.3. So that's the provision where it outlines the timeline of the project. So when the contractor must commence work and previously in the 2008 CCDC, the deadline for substantial performance of the work. The phrase substantial performance of the work has now been changed to this new phrase called ready for takeover. So what does this mean? Now, the definition is defined in a new section of the 2020 CCDC, 12 uh, GC 12.1. And um, it basically lists out the prerequisites in order to obtain ready for takeover status. This includes, number one, the consultant having certified or verified substantial performance of the work. So that's taking a term from the old CCDC and substantial performance is something that we get from the construction act, which talks about um, meeting uh, the threshold of how much of the work, how much of the value of the work has been completed. So that's the first prerequisite. Number two, evidence of compliance with the requirements for occupancy or occupancy permit as prescribed by the applicable jurisdiction. So it might not be applicable for all situations, but say if you're doing a major project and you have to have an occupancy permit, that is now part of the prerequisites in order for the, cons uh, the contractor to achieve this ready for takeover status. Number three, final cleaning and waste removal at the time of applying for ready for takeover status as required by the contract documents. Now, this is a point that uh, we sometimes see having some issues where the work is technically completed up to the point of substantial performance, but the contractor leaves a big mess on your, on your property. And the contract documents usually talk about uh, how the contractor is supposed to clean up after their work is done uh, as part of completing the project, but now this is now enshrined under this new requirement. Number four, delivery to the owner's operations and maintenance documents reasonably necessary for immediate operation slash maintenance of the improvement. So uh, this is basically your, your documents. If, it's, if you have like a new mechanical system, documents of that nature. Number five, the providing the copies of the as-built drawings that's completed on, uh, at the date on site. That's very important. Sometimes you don't want a situation where the contractor says they finished the work and they don't provide you the as-builts, which you might need for uh, future work or future repairs later on. Number six, startup and testing as required for immediate occupancy as required by the contract. Number seven, securing, act, uh, giving the owners the ability to secure access to their work. So what that means is, uh, say you have a project where the contractor has locks to the gates or locks to open up the fences to access the work. The contractor is supposed to give that ability back to the owner at the end of the project. And so uh, if they don't do that, then you have a problem with, uh, okay, so then like the contractor still has access to the work, even though the work is completed. And anyway, so you don't want to get in a situation where you can't, as a condominium corporation, you can't secure your own property. So now that's also another requirement under the new ready for takeover status requirement. And lastly, demonstration and training if required uh, to basically teach the economy corporation or the owner on how to uh, maintain or how to operate the new improvements. I think this change is pretty good. I think it formalizes what has likely been in practice for years uh, in terms of 
I think in reality, if you think about it from a practical standpoint, yes, yeah, like all of these things are pretty logical for a contractor to do. But now this is kind of enshrined as a provision in the 2020 version of the CCDC. And I think uh, this will also be helpful in situations where projects run into difficulty near the end of the project, where the contractor is, is requesting final payments, but issues such as the ones that are listed uh, above remain unresolved. And I'm really mindful of the time, so I'm going to talk about one other smaller change, and that's GC 8.2.1. And it's a new provision that basically uh, reflects the change in Ontario construction law that allows for a prompt payment, which we will discuss at our next condo crunch. And it basically says that any of the rights under the CCDC um, doesn't affect uh, the party's rights to seek adjudication uh, based on any other applicable legislation that's applicable at the jurisdiction. So that's a very, that's another small one. And it's another amendment that's reflective of the new changes in the construction act that we have today. Okay, so now I wanna talk about termination provisions uh, in the CCDC, specifically the owner's right to terminate a contract. The applicable, the applicable provision is GC 7.1, and it's the same in both the 2008 and the 2020 CCDC versions. When I say the same, I mean the same number. Um, there isn't too much substantial change between the two editions in terms of the mechanics, uh, not necessarily because the wording hasn't changed, but because uh, the 2020, as I, I'll, I'll talk about later, but the 2020 CCDC edition kind of formalizes some changes that happen in the common law that has occurred. We, if you look at it, the termination provision, you know that there's two. There's one where a contractor becomes bankrupt. So I think that was pretty straightforward. So I'm not gonna talk too much about that. I'm gonna talk about the second, uh, second element to terminate a contractor, which is a contractor's failure to perform the work. And that's at GC 7.1.2. And this is where some changes have occurred. So at the outset, I wanna say that the CCDCs don't make it easy for parties to terminate the contract. In fact, I think the provisions work in a way to actively discourage termination. Instead, the parties are encouraged uh, through the wording of the provisions to try and work out their differences. And the termination provision at GC 7.1.2 is kind of like a last resort. Condominiums should use this provision sparingly and only after extensive consultation with their engineer and also preferably their legal team. Uh, this is because CCDCs are typically very large contracts. And if you terminate a contract of this nature without justification, you can find yourself at a substantial risk of liability. The 2008 version of this provision says that if a contractor must have failed to uh, the requirements of the contract to a substantial degree, and then the consultant must provide a written statement to the owner and the contractor to say that sufficient cause exists to justify the termination. The owner must then give the contractor written notice of the contractor's default and give the contractor five working days to rectify the default. Now, what has happened since the enactment of the 2008 provision is that the courts have put their own interpretation of what some of these terms mean, such as sufficient cause and what adequate notice means. These requirements, which are already in place in the common law, so what this means is that if you have a project that has a 2008 CCDC, these kind of requirements that are now enshrined in the 2020 CCDC is also applicable to you because the courts have interpreted this into 
the 2008 provisions. So what are these, what are these uh, requirements that the courts have imposed? So I'm gonna talk about these based on the 2020 CDC because they've kind of put them into the provisions themselves. The consultant's written notice, so that's the notice that the consultant provides to both the owner and the consultant must provide the detail of such neglect to perform the work properly or such failure to comply with the requirements of the contract to a substantial degree. So the, what basically it says is that the, consult, the consultant's notice must be very detailed. It must lay out in detail what uh, the default is uh, with references to the contract if possible. And uh, it can't uh, be just a generic, the contractor isn't doing the work properly, you should have sufficient cause to terminate. Yeah, so the notice that the owner provides to the contractor also has to have more detail. Under the 2020 CCDC, the owner's notice must provide particulars of the default, including references to the applicable provision of the contract. So it, essentially what the notice of the owner has to do is has to provide the contractor with enough information about the particulars of default so that the contractor knows what they should do to kind of uh, rectify the problems. If that isn't met, then we could have significant problems later on if the, con if the owner tries to terminate the contract. Now, one phrase that has been better clarified in the CCDC is what substantial degree means. Now, if I was on the committee preparing the CCDC, I might have considered adding a definition of what this means in the contract itself, but uh, that hasn't happened. So that's okay because in the common law, so in the court cases as relevant to this matter, uh, there's already a definition for what substantial degree means. And the threshold is high. Essentially what the phrase means is that the breach by the contractor has been so egregious that the owner isn't getting what they're paying for. So one theoretical example that I could think of is if you're paying a contractor for a new roof, but then roof is leaking everywhere, chances are that might meet the threshold of substantial degree because you pay for a new roof and the roof is not working. If you're considering using the termination provision in CCDC, make sure you have the right support to justify such a decision. Make sure your consultant is involved in providing the necessary commentary, including the formal notices to the contractor. Make sure your subsequent notice to a contractor is detailed and sufficient so that the contractor should know what they should be doing to rectify the issues. And lastly, I wanna mention that I would discourage using this provision as some sort of combination of a grand strategy to get out of a CCDC. Courts want to see parties in a CCDC working honestly and in good faith to solve their differences. In cases where I read, where it looked to the judge, where it looked to the judge like the owner was kind of conducting things in a certain way to get to a point where they could use termination provision to kick the contractor out of the project. If, the, if that's what is being done, you could, be, you could wind up having some substantial liability and in the cases that I read that where the judge found that this occurred, the judge determined, the judge actually gave a huge damage award to the contractor. Okay, I, I know I'm already falling behind, so I want to quickly talk about warranties. Uh, the warranty section of CCDCs hasn't changed in both the 2008 and the 2020 version. Uh, the main difference is that the warranty section is now uh, in the 2020 version uh, uh, before the indemnification and the waiver section. Nothing is substantial. The waiver provision itself 
uh, I want to provide some comments on that. The provision provides a limited warranty by the contractor for defects in the work that appear within one year from the date of substantial performance, 2008 version, or in the 2020 version, they're ready for takeover date. Our view is that this type of warranty provision is a bit too narrow. We generally suggest making amendments to better reflect the case law that supports the argument that a contractor has broader obligations to the owner with respect to defective work or materials for items that do not become apparent until after the warranty period has expired, i.e. like latent defects. Now, the contract documents, so I'm talking about documents outside the CCDC general provisions, so sometimes the tendering documents and et cetera, sometimes also have provisions that talk about warranties, and sometimes those warranty periods are discussing those documents are longer than one year. So you want to make sure that when you're uh, preparing your CCDC contract documents that uh, the various uh, document sections uh, work together and are consistent because you want to avoid situations where there are inconsistencies in the wording amongst all the contract documents. And with that, uh, that's all I have for today. I, there's a lot more to talk about, but I, I recognize the time. So, Thank you so much, David. These are really, really big topics. And so what we wanted to do today is just kind of give some of the key issues to be thinking about. I think if we pull out some of the key issues from David's discussion is, again, the CCDC contract is very specific on termination rights. Don't enter into termination lightly. Make sure you're talking with your relevant consultants. And of course, there is this overarching duty in all aspects of your business to act in honestly and in good faith. Make sure you're doing that at all times in your dealings under the CCDC contract as well. So our final speaker today is Christy. So Christy, I go ahead and invite you to turn your camera on. Christy is going to carry on with our discussion about some of the key provisions in the CCDC contract, because again, today it's all about the CCDC. So Christy, over to you. Thanks, Nancy. Um, I am going to cover just a couple of things that are contained in the CCDC contract, as you've heard both Jim and David say, uh, as well as Nancy during this presentation. Uh, while the CCDC contract is generally a good contract, there are some uh, provisions that I guess as far as we're concerned, would ideally be modified. And whether that's um, in the context of a different contract altogether or just simply um, an amending agreement to the CCDC contract to amend the provisions uh, is something that can be worked out. But the, the areas that I'm going to cover are um, the two areas that I'm going to cover first two areas that I'm gonna cover. Generally speaking, areas that we would like to see amendments to. Ideally, these would be amended before you entered into a CCDC contract. Um, so the first area I'm going to cover is indemnification. And this is covered in section 13.1 of the CCDC contract. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with the concept of indemnification. Generally speaking, um, you, you might see it in the context of a condominium corporation seeking indemnification from a unit owner. The idea behind indemnification is if another party causes you to incur costs or suffer damages, that other party should be responsible to you through indemnification to cover those costs. Um, so that's the general concept of it. And that concept is built into the CCDC contract. Um, Section 13.1 contains provisions that uh, stipulate that both the contractor and the condominium corporation have a duty to indemnify one another in certain circumstances. Um, I'm going to confine my comments to the contractor's duty to indemnify because that's what we're mainly concerned with is when something happens on site, 
uh, when would the contractor be responsible to the corporation for costs, additional costs or damages suffered by the condominium as a result of whatever it is that happens. It's particularly important, the concept of indemnification is particularly important in the context of construction contracts because of the fact that um, often, typically, it's the contractor that controls the construction site, often to the exclusion of the condominium corporation. So while you as a condominium corporation are responsible for what happens on the common elements, you might not have complete control over what's happening on a construction site. So it's important to know uh, what rights you would have um, to seek indemnification from a contractor in the event something happens on the construction site or something that originates from the construction site causes the corporation to suffer harm or incur damages. Um, so generally speaking, the CCDC wording includes language to confirm that each party, so the contractor and the condominium, are responsible for indemnifying each other. But there are some important restrictions to this obligation. As I mentioned, I'm going to confine my comments to um, the restrictions imposed on uh, the contractor's duty, so limitations on the contractor's duty to the condominium corporation. So first and foremost, uh, the CCDC wording confirms that the liability of the contractor is limited to losses, damages, claims, et cetera, that are caused by the contractor's negligence or its failure to fulfill the terms of the contract, so breach of contract. This um, is better than nothing, but it's not as broad as we typically would like to see because there are certainly circumstances where there's an accident on site and it's not uh, the result of negligence per se, and it may not be the result of a breach of contract, but the accident occurs nonetheless and it causes damages to the corporation. That's a situation where the indemnification obligation would not be triggered. So the corporation, or sorry, the contractor in that situation would not necessarily be responsible to the condominium corporation for damages suffered by the condominium as a result of that workplace accident. Now, insurance might kick in, and that's a different issue I'm going to cover a little bit briefly, but um, but in the event the insurance is not there to provide coverage, that's something that the condominium corporation needs to be concerned with. And again, based on the, the, the standard wording within the CCDC contract, that kind of uh, damage is not going to be covered um, by the contractor. Uh, another uh, restriction in the CCDC wording is um, that the, the contractor's duty to indemnify isn't extended to um, circumstances of uh, where, where the claim relates to indirect or consequential damages. So it only covers direct damages. Um, as an example, uh, uh, if there was a situation where the contractor's work caused physical damage to a unit, and that unit became uninhabitable, for example, um, the accommodation costs of the owner or um, the uh, lost rental income of the owner, those are indirect losses or consequential losses that might not be covered. Um, another situation that might, might be more relevant would be where there's, for example, uh, defective work that's done that results in water entry into the building, the, the costs of remedying the, de uh, the defective work might be covered, but indirect damage would be the consequential um, damage from the water entry into the building. So reco seeking recovery or indemnification for those additional costs might not be covered, given the wording of the CCDC contract. 
Uh, further restriction with respect to the duty to indemnify is the extent of the liability. So pursuant to the, the terms of the CCDC contract, this obligation is limited to $2 million in terms of a total value or the value of the contract, um, whichever is lower. So if you have, um, or sorry, it's not whichever is lower, it's, it's $2 million of the value of the contract up to a maximum of $20 million. So if you have a contract that's worth more than $20 million, the liability obviously is going to be significantly uh, limited as a result of this, this provision. Generally speaking, um, these restrictions on the contractor's duty to indemnify are, we consider them to be relatively important and we prefer wording that's broader um, and that provides more general coverage. So basically, if the corporation incurs costs, damages, claims, as a result of something that's within the control of the contractor, then the contractor should be obligated to indemnify the condominium corporation. So generally speaking, in a nutshell, that's how we would like the contract to be worded. Um, so this is an area, again, this is section 13.1. If you're looking at signing a CCDC contract, particularly if it's one that um, is high value, we would recommend considering amending this provision. And that can be done in a number of different ways. And we, of course, can assist with that if you, uh, if you require. The next section of the contract that I'm going to cover is section 13.2, which deals with waiver of claims. Um, and this, again, from a legal perspective, is an important section because it basically imposes additional restrictions on the condominium corporation's uh, right to claim against the contractor in the event of, of damages or um, liability. Uh, generally speaking, if you don't waive claims, then your rights to make a claim against a contractor would be just subject to you know, the, the law around uh, the basis of claim, like you would have to make out that you have a claim, but beyond that, it's just a matter of timing. Um, so we have in Ontario, the Limitations Act, which says that if you become aware of a claim, you have two years from the date on which you become aware of that claim to make your claim. There's also an ultimate limitation period that says, um, uh, there's basically 15 years is the maximum amount of time that can pass from when the basis of claim arose by which you have to assert a claim. So just to distinguish between the two years and the 15 years, if there's a deficiency in work that's done on site and uh, over time it results in water uh, ingress and uh, damages to the building as a result, if, you, if the work is done in year zero and you become aware of the, uh, the water ingress in year five, you have two years from when you first discovered that water ingress in year five to assert your claim. So technically until year seven. If you don't discover that water ingress until year 16, then you are outside of the 15-year time frame in which you can make a claim, that 15-year ultimate limitation period. That basically is a time frame that rolls from year zero, regardless of awareness. So even if you, if you never become aware of the deficiency within that 15-year time frame, unfortunately means you're, you're going to be out of time when you eventually become aware of that, that deficiency and the basis of your claim in year 16 or 17 or whatever it may be. So those are the general timeframes that apply to claims in Ontario. When contracts contain waivers of claims, they impose additional 
um, restrictions on a condominium corporation's ability to assert claims beyond just those simple time frame um, limitations that I just mentioned. And there are some important waiver of claims that are included in CCDC contracts that are included at paragraphs 13.2.3, 13.2.4, and 13.2.5. Um, I'm going to go through each of them just very briefly. Generally speaking, 13.2.3 confirms that the condominium corporation will waive most claims for which it has knowledge prior to the ready for takeover date where the claim is not properly asserted before that time frame. So David mentioned this new definition, this new defined term that we find in the CCDC contract ready for takeover date. It's related to substantial completion, um, but basically when the work is pretty much almost done, um, that's the, the ready for takeover date. Obviously, there's some defined terms, but just generally speaking, once you get to the point where the contract is almost complete and you get to this deadline, this ready for takeover date, you've got to be sure that if you are aware of any claims before that date, that they are asserted before the ready for takeover date. Because if the ready for takeover date comes and goes, you may not be able to assert a claim for those claims of which you were aware prior to that deadline. So just be sure to speak with your consultant prior to the ready for takeover date to ensure that any claims that you're aware of pursuant to the terms of the contract, including claims for deficiencies, are asserted prior to the ready for takeover date. Uh, paragraph 13.2.4 um, contains a general waiver with respect to claims in relation to defective work. And what it says is that claims related to defective work must be made in writing within six years from the date of substantial performance of the work, or sorry, for, from the date of the ready for takeover uh, date, or within such shorter period as may be prescribed by limitations statute. As I mentioned before, there's this notion in, in Ontario's law around um, limitation period and timing for claims of, of discoverability or awareness of the claim. So if you don't become aware of a claim until later, that's okay, as long as you're within that ultimate 15-year window, and as long as you assert your claim within two years from when you discover the claim. The wording of paragraph 13.2.4 effectively alters that discoverability aspect of the limitation period, or I should say that ultimate limitation period, it changes it from 15 years to six years. So uh, it there's no requirement that you be aware of the claim within that six-year time frame. It just simply says that any claims respecting defective work must be asserted in writing within six years. So if you become aware of your defective work in year seven or eight, based on the current wording or the stipulated wording of the CCDC contract, you would not be able to assert a claim. You would have waived your right to a claim for um, that defective work. So that wording is wording that we are not super fond of. And finally, paragraph 13.2.5 deals with, uh, uh, it provides a waiver of claim with respect to claims in relation to acts or omissions that occur after the ready for takeover date. So if there um, are claims related to acts or omissions of the contractor, so anything done by the contractor after the ready for takeover date, those claims must be asserted in writing within 395 days uh, following the date, following the ready for takeover date. So you've got 395 days from that deadline, that ready for takeover deadline to assert claims. After that time frame, um, again, you will be waiving your right to make any claims. So Generally speaking, the limitation act, so the two years and the 15 years that I talked about earlier, those provisions apply um, 
in Ontario. But here we see further restrictions on those. We would prefer to just for the condominium corporation to just be subject to the two year limitation period and the 15 year limitation period that are included in Ontario's uh, Limitations Act. We don't like these additional waivers of claims. Um, and so again, this is an area that we would typically recommend be amended if we were asked to review and comment on a CCDC contract. And it's something you might want to consider having amended prior to signing, especially again, if you're dealing with a, a significant job. The final section I wanted to mention is um, section 11, which deals with insurance. What I wanted to mention here is that the insurance obligations of the contractor, what this provision says is that the insurance provision, the, the insurance obligations of the contractor are um, uh, limited to the insurance obligations that are found in another CCDC document. It's CCDC 41, which is called the insurance requirements. And that document is referenced in the CCDC2 contract that we're talking about here today. And what that document says in terms of limitations or the, the, the extent of insurance um, is it provides uh, $10 million worth of coverage. So it's something to be aware of, depending on the value of your work, you might want something different. Um, that's something to speak to your consultant about. Um, and the other thing you'll want to do is obviously review the CCDC 41 document in detail with your consultant to make sure that all of the provisions is not just one general limitation. It's um, There's a number of uh, um, coverages and types of claims. So you'll just want to review that. And finally, we typically would recommend that you take um, probably the CCDC 41 as well as the contract you're considering signing and have your insurance broker take a look at it to make sure that you've got the necessary insurance coverage that you need and that the insurance provisions that are provided for in this contract in terms of the contractor's obligations are sufficient as far as your broker is concerned. And that's all I've got. Thank you so much, Christy. There's so much to consider in a construction contract and the CCDC does try and cover it all. But as our three speakers say, have said, uh, there are still things that we want to see you thinking about, we hope you're thinking about and some amendments to better protect your condominium corporation in these types of contracts. So I want to thank all three of our speakers today for talking about that issue and stay tuned exactly one month from today, October 29th, we're going to do part two of this construction series and we're going to talk about prompt payments. I think each of our speakers has alluded to prompt payments today and uh, there's it's a whole new regime that's coming into play and we all need to be quite aware of it because it does impose some serious obligations and some very tight time frames on condominium corporations. So watch for our next posting and we hope to see everybody again on October 29th and of course watch for our podcast to come out of today's session and maybe just maybe a blog as well. So thank you everybody for attending and we look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great day and stay safe. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.